Welcome back to the Future Cities podcast. My name is Marissa Matzler. And I'm Robert Lloyd. Good to be with you all again. So, you know, most of us here on the Future Cities team, we're all pretty big nerds. So we've got a lot of ecology nerds. We've got some engineering nerds, some policy nerds like myself. Oh, sure. And some of us are even science fiction nerds. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been into sci-fi since I was a little kid. And, you know, there are a lot of great sci-fi cities, future cities or futuristic cities, fantastical cities uh, on other worlds or, you know, imaginary versions of this world. But one of the things that's always kind of bugged me is that in a lot of sci-fi, especially movies and TV, you never learn much about how those cities work. All the behind the scenes, the, the technology, as well as the social structure, a lot of that is just glossed over. So I got really excited, I know you did too, when we learned about a new book just released that looks at some aspects of how cities of the future might operate. Mm-hmm. So on today's episode, we're going to be looking at the book Cities of Light, which is a unique collection of both sci-fi stories, art, and essays blended together that are exploring different visions of solar-powered cities in particular. And the authors explore these new technologies, um, as Robert was just saying, as their human characters are experiencing them viscerally, politically, and socially. So more than just the, just the technology. Now, this book, Cities of Light, is open access, and the PDF is available for free for all to read on the Arizona State University website. So we highly recommend you taking a look for yourself. That's right. We will provide a link in the text accompanying the episode. But to give you a preview, we use the power of technology to connect with some of the authors and editors of the project to learn more about how it came about and how it can get readers to think and talk with each other about how new technology can be implemented in urban spaces to lead to more positive and inclusive futures for our cities. Joey, hello, and Clark, good to see you again. So let's just dig right into questions today. And um, this question is for our, all of our guests this morning. So this is a rather unique book project as we, were, as we were just mentioning. And so we're curious to hear a little bit more how it is that you ended up getting involved with this project and why you wanted to be a part of it. So I think we'll start with a little round robin this morning. So uh, Lauren, would you like to start us off. Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. I, I'm a, was a part of Cities of Light uh, and I was also part of the, the first book project, Weight of Light. And I'm involved because uh, a, a lot of my work is how to think about the future and, and how we think about the future in ways that lead to more sustainable outcomes. Uh, so I was brought in on those projects as sort of social scientist futurist. Uh, to help kind of build out the future worlds. Great. Excellent. Uh, Deji, how, how did you find yourself on this project? I've been lucky enough to be a fellow with uh, Future Tense and, you know, the collaboration at New America Foundation and ASU for a few years now. So I've just really enjoyed working with Joey and Ed and the team. And I was invited to, to join this workshop. It was fantastic. Uh, I know we're going to talk about it a little bit more, but just learned so much. In my day job, it was a really nice coincidence because now I'm, I'm leading sustainability. So I get to benefit from that. And what I love about these projects is when you mash together, you know, scientists, policymakers, futurists, and writers and artists, it's just a magical experience that I've been uh, really proud to. I've done now a couple of them, maybe two or three, and each time it's so special. Uh, yes, I like that interdisciplinary uh, space for sure. Um, Joey, would you like to tell us a bit about how and why you, you were involved with this project? Sure. So uh, our center at Arizona State University, the Center for Science and the Imagination, um, uses this approach to projects quite a bit of uh, building uh, a publication that 
blends fiction and nonfiction and visual art and that starts in a workshop that, that brings together people from different perspectives and sectors uh, with different approaches to a challenge or problem. And uh, so I started working on these solar futures projects uh, with Clark with our first book, The Weight of Light. And that was such a rewarding experience. And, and we were lucky enough to be able to work with the National Renewable Energy Lab um, in Colorado for this second book and, and to dive in with a new set of collaborators. The books have kind of similar structures, although Cities of Life is a bit longer and has um, a bit more nonfiction. And it, I don't know, it was really exciting to bring this approach of like, building these interdisciplinary conversations and then capturing them in these kind of multimodal books um, around something so timely and so urgent as, you know, making our cities more sustainable and more equitable. Uh, and, and, and as it turned out, we did this workshop right before the U.S. started to lock down for the COVID pandemic. And so it, it was in a moment where we were all thinking, we were all already tuned to be thinking about the inadequacies of like our built environments and the ways that our communities maybe weren't being served by them and how we could change them. So it was a really, um, you know, it was a, it was a good thing to be able to sort of channel a lot of our nervous energy in um, as we were riding out um, those lockdowns and all of the uncertainty to think like, well, okay, how could things be different and how could we start building cities in a way that um, honors and celebrates uh, the cultures and communities that inhabit them? Uh, Clark, last but definitely not least. I've been launching this project for almost a decade now. In fact, maybe for longer. The idea of trying to use fiction to think about urban futures and, and human futures came to Ira Bennett and I, uh, actually, I think as far back as 2005, we were sitting in an auditorium with a futurist from San Francisco who works with all the big tech companies. And she she was telling us how they do futurism and she was like you know you you can use science fiction but you have to strip out all the stories all the fantasy all the nonsense and get down to the nub of you know where's the innovation in technology in this story and is it realistic and I and I looked at each other and we we're just like what? You're throwing away the best part of science fiction. Uh, its ability to imagine how people might interact in infrastructures and environments and contexts that are radically different than the ones that we have at the moment. And, and um, we, we were at the time also grappling with a recently rep released report from the National Academies on the Future of Energy in America called America's Energy Future, in which there was no America. This was an 800-page book about technologies. And there was no discussion of the people mm -hmm. of the future. There was no discussion of the country of the future. And we thought, this makes no sense, right? We need to, we need to develop some tools, some capabilities that allow us to bring people back into the conversation about what the future might look like. And so a lot of water went under the bridge and then we had this opportunity uh, with a little bit of money and we thought, you know, let's go work with Joey uh, and Ed and Ruth and the Center for Science and the Imagination to say, can we do something radically different? Can we bring together engineers and social scientists and artists and, and, and fiction writers and really leverage all of that expertise to ask what the future might look like if we've undergone a radical energy transformation uh, in mm -hmm. this country and not look like in the sense of which things are putting electrons on the grid, but rather look like in the sense of what, a, what does our world look like? Who are the people? What, you know, we know that our lives, our imaginations are shaped by these large energy infrastructures that we have, right? We, we imagine the world as automobile drivers, not as horse riders or walkers, right? And so we know that we can get 45 miles away in an hour, right? On the other side of town, because we know we live in a world full of automobile 
based energy. We know that we can plan to have a meeting with folks in Pakistan at 11 o'clock tonight because we have electricity and we're going to have light and we're going to have internet and all of that uh, at that time. And so how is our world going to change if we undertake a, another radical transformation of human energy systems? What are our cities going to look like? How are they going to be organized? What are the design options? And mm -hmm. fortunately, Joey and Ruth and Ed said, yes, absolutely. And then they found people like Deji and and we, we were lucky enough to recruit folks like Lauren to come and participate too. Oh, that's really, that is really awesome. Cause I, yeah, I really enjoyed the book really because of all of that uh, world building and contextualization and all the things that I love about sci-fi. Um, so it was really, it was really exciting to read. And, but I also think it, it would be great to, to hear more about uh, the process that you all went through as all of you were talking here, you know, uh, mentioning that it was this like unique process uh, of bringing everyone together. So uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about what happened um, in these workshops. So as, as, we, as we read about it in the book, it seemed like you all were sort of given topics to react to. Um, how, what did that process look like for you? And we can just kind of open this up for discussion. I can start off by just saying that these narrative hackathons, as we sometimes call them, we think this, the term workshop sounds a little uh, less fun than we hope they are. They usually take place gotcha. over a couple of days. So, so this was uh, two days at um, the National Renewable Energy Lab's headquarters in Golden, Colorado. So we had these like beautiful mountain views and it was lovely out and we were in a hotel where we could walk back and forth. So uh, we got to all spend quite a lot of time with each other um, and we got this great behind the scenes tour and got to see some of the clean mobility labs and um, other kinds of, you know, technologies and development at the, at the lab. That's a part of this that uh, we try to build into all these workshops is some sort of like non sitting in a room activity. Like, you know, sometimes we'll like go to an art museum or something, you know, or just like to get people kind of thinking differently, but NREL created this like great um, space where we could see, you know, places where technological change was happening. But um we kind of oscillate people in these narrative hackathons between different modes of collaboration and work. So uh, I always say like, we're moving people between large group discussion and brainstorming, small group working time where, where people are, are in teams of maybe between like four and seven people. And those teams involve fiction writers, artists, um, experts in, in a variety of fields. And uh, in this case, uh, PhD students are some of those experts, which we think is a really uh, important uh, element of this too. So small group working time, we'll sometimes pair the groups up for sort of cross-group feedback. We'll sometimes leave time for individual um, working because though we don't expect people to write an essay or a science fiction story in two days, you know, two highly interactive days, we do kind of hope that people start to develop the bones or the skeleton for, for a story. And, and like you said, um, Marissa, the, the world building, I think one of the uh, affordances of doing these highly interactive synchronous activities, whether they're in person or not, is they allow the working teams who are developing the different sort of scenarios and stories um, that you see in the book to really get into uh, the nooks and crannies of those worlds and, and to flesh out a lot of details that maybe don't make it into the story and maybe will show up in the essays. And so I, I think there's a huge amount of value to the process, um, not just having the textual pieces talk to each other, but have the pieces hopefully capture some of the energy and collaboration and kind of deep work and deep thinking that go on um, in the workshop. So um, I'd like to hear more from, from Clark and from um, the, the others here uh, about their experience too, but that's kind of the idea is, is just sort of structuring time. So people have, uh, are, are in different social arrangements around work and are kind of iterating on ideas and sharing um, across those different settings. Can I just prompt Clark specifically? Because I think um, Joey brought up some good points about this, the scaffolding. One thing that really influenced our uh, discussions and world building though, was that input that was given by Clark and others at the beginning that helped kind of just shape the way that we thought about energy and society and technology. Sure, happy to briefly talk about that. The kind of underpinning piece here that we've kind of realized is is really significant and and not often thought through is that it's not just a question of are we gonna 
build a carbon neutral future, but which carbon neutral future are we going to build? Uh, and there are real, and we've come to call them design choices about the future of our, our worlds uh, that are big choices about infrastructure and how we do infrastructure. And you guys as part of Urex know about you know, differences between green infrastructure and gray infrastructure and the kind of consequences it would have to make those kinds of choices. Well, here we're, we're working with a technology, solar energy, that's unbelievably flexible. You can build solar systems that are as small as your pocket calculator. You can build solar systems that are as big as the, uh, you know, a gigawatt power plant out in the desert or on agricultural land and at all scales in between. And every single one of those solar systems will be profitable. So this isn't a question of, can we make money with one of these, but not the others? It's a question of how are we gonna choose to construct a future in which if we're gonna power the world with renewable energy, we need probably half of that to come from solar energy. And so that's, you know, like billions of solar panels that we're going to have to put down in the world. And where do you put them? And so do you put them in cities or do you put them in the countryside? Do you make big power plants? Do you make small systems? Uh, who gets to own all of these solar panels? These design choices, and we've got a list in the book of about eight or 10 of them. Uh, those are, we, we offer those up as prompts. And sometimes we, uh, you know, give people random selections of, hey, you've got to do the ugly ones out in the desert and you get to do the pretty ones inside the city. Uh, sometimes uh, we, like in this case, we said instead, why don't you pick a city and then pick two different districts in the city and think about how those two different districts are going to experience solar energy differently. Uh, in the future, right? So we give people these different kind of prompts, but they're all situated in this idea that design needs to be contextualized and there are big design choices and those big design choices have big social and economic implications for the future. You know, if I may, I wanted to comment on a theme that I saw across a lot of the stories, but Deji, maybe you can speak in particular to how it plays out in your story. Uh, I'm a social scientist, though I have one foot planted pretty firmly on the ecology side of things too. But, you know, looking at the social stuff, I see that sometimes it's even harder to try and implement some of the social changes that we need to build a new future than it is the technological changes. And in Scent of the Free Tales, one of the themes is that the, the central character seems to be having a tough time adjusting to uh, this new community that they're visiting, who, who the residents of which do some things in a very different way than this character is used to. Uh, and there are some other changes that are, that are coming in with this new future that uh, he seems to have some trouble adjusting to. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how, how and why that came out as a theme in your story. Thanks. Yeah, so I, Lauren was in my group, so she came up with the, the really interesting idea of a dark sky community, um, which I think was something we wove throughout. Um, and we had just a number of very interesting people sitting literally around the table pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. so we could do that. And, you know, there are just so many ideas coming back and forth. Clark, you know, in opening the session, grounded everyone, especially non-practitioners, with a baseline of knowledge. And I think we all shared that and that gave us something to work with. I knew from the beginning that, uh, you know, I thought a way of bridging these different experiences of carbon futures would be to actually physically have the main character or the protagonist move from one of the places to the other, that that would be an easier way to tell the story than to try to do a lot of world building and say, uh, you know, talk about the other places that could work too. That's, um, but I thought just a, a literally physical journey in a car because the car embodies so many of these, the issues that we were talking about 
And um, yeah, the, you know, the, what we painted was a scenario in which Houston um, was more carbon intensive and they made decisions as a, as a city to support that and, and to, you know, because of the kind of oil-based economy and all the refineries, you know, that kind of uh, that history. But that San Antonio for, because of its sort of unique history and location had embraced uh, many of the, you know, uh, technologies, exciting technologies both including data, um, the usage of data and who gets to own the data. So we wanted to have that contrast. Um, and I think uh, that was really fun to explore. My wife is from Texas and, you know, every year, every two years when an election comes around, everyone says, oh, Texas is a purple state. Uh, it's going to go Democrat or whatever. And she's always like, she grew up and she's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how deep these cultural connections go. They're, these are generations of, of you know, um, political and social and cultural beliefs, they don't just die because something nice comes on. And, you know, one of the things that I have explored in my own personal fiction is when you have a new exciting technology, you, you often have a mingling of the two. You have the, the great shiny new one, but then you have the older one and they work in tandem. And you see that, especially in developing countries where you can go to one neighborhood a fancy neighborhood and have the, the, fan, the, the most advanced technology in the world. And then you go to another one and they're still using 2G phones or they're using, uh, you know, people still listen to the radio in their cars, despite uh, you can listen to other things like that. So it's that mingling for me that is really interesting and exciting. And we tried to explore that in the story and the, the character himself is struggling with that, moving from this carbon intensive kind of experience, which he believed in and forms the basis of his culture and philosophy and his identity as an immigrant, that this is what makes him special to this new future, which is complicated and the social structures are confusing and challenging and even, you know, challenge his own sense of fatherhood and manhood. And all of this was done with the help of the, the people at the table, but that's, that's the direction we ended up going. And it was really exciting and, you know, for me, a learning experience uh, to consider you know, some of these different things, especially with friends. I have friends who live in San Antonio. So I've actually made that drive many times from Houston, uh, from, well, not from Houston, actually from Austin to San Antonio, back and forth, also to Houston, kind of that triangle um, and seeing the, even the land, how the landscape changes, it gets drier and, uh, you know, the, you see different um, animals and stuff and, and you feel the cultural shifts happening as you're moving about. So uh, we were trying to explore some of those things in the story. That's great. Thank you so much. I wonder if uh, you or the rest of the team could comment on maybe how we as individuals, as small communities and as a society can maybe uh, find it easier to navigate those difficult social transformations in real life. Any ideas about that? Maybe I'll just jump in and um, I wanted to point out two things that um, that were in our the introductory presentation that Clark brought to our attention. And I think they go directly to your, your question, Robert. So the first is um, in looking back at the sort of history of, of energy and energy infrastructure and energy use in American society uh, and also uh, European society, um, we didn't always turn away from energy production. That that there was a time when, um, and we saw these sort of beautiful, beautiful coal power plants that were ornate and integrated into European cities. And, and so uh, energy production uh, was sort of integrated into the physical geography of everyday life. Um, and the second was that um, energy use since electrification wasn't always as it is today, that the way that we use energy is re partly responsive to the needs of energy production, that we use energy in the evenings because uh, coal power plants function better if we have consistent energy demand. Uh, and so companies like General Electric, which were originally coal power plants um, and electricity producers, went on to produce uh, appliances that pulled energy from the grid, keeping demand stable. And so we really wanted to lean into that with our story, this idea that we have been shaped by energy in the past, and our relationship with energy in the past has been different. So it can be different in the future. Uh, and so I think when we think about 
the um, scent of the free tales and this dark sky community, we were really thinking about, well, what if people leaned into this new rhythm of life brought on by a reliance on solar energy and fluctuations in energy production and shaped their life around it in a way that was reflective of and reinforcing of their culture and their values. Um, but I think one of the things that is interesting about the solar landscape of the future that we're exploring is there, it isn't the same as the energy system that we have today. It is not one size fits all. That the energy system of the future is very much envisioned as customizable, both based on values and preferences, but also we recognize based on one's ability to adapt, financial ability to adapt, or the legal uh, constraints of the place that they live. And so while we see uh, Raj, the main character from The Scent of the Free Tales, being uncomfortable with the customs of this community in San Antonio that he's going into, you also see that he's able to make choices in his own life that uh, reflect what feels comfortable to him and safe to him. And, and I think that is reflective of the way that we uh, understand the energy transition to be happening from uh, a primarily uh, centralized system where everybody gets roughly the same thing what they pay for uh, to a decentralized system that is more reflective of individual interests, needs, and also abilities. You know, I think um, I think this idea of customizability, the other thing that comes out of these stories collectively is a sense that there's a real passion at the community scale if we can figure out how to unleash it to make futures work better uh, for communities. And I think that reflects... Uh, a, a bunch of things. It reflects partly the kind of moment that we're in in American hit American history, particularly American racial history, uh, and a sense that the idea that America works for everybody is, you know, at a minimum, completely unraveled at the edges, and probably we should just abandon the whole idea. But that we also need to, you know, create opportunities for different communities to find new ways to create futures. Uh, and I think part of that is also wrapped up in the construction of these technologies. You know, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that we're interacting here on a new technology that all of us have learned. Um, and we all now talk about being on Zoom all day, right? And that level at which our day-to-day -day lives are wrapped up in these large technological systems, um, and especially in the standardized large technological systems that we see in the energy, in energy system, so that we have these automobile-based societies, we have these electricity-based societies in which it, it, it is these large technological systems that then shape what we do from minute to minute and hour to hour uh, in our days, in addition to kind of the, as I was saying earlier, the kind of ways that we imagine our relationship to the urban landscape, for example. And so I think one of the consequences of what we built in the 20th century is that we disempowered local communities to make these kind of innovations because we said, no, no, you're gonna be part of this big electricity grid. The only person who can sell electricity in the Phoenix, you know, Eastern half of Phoenix is the Salt River Project by law. Uh, and so everybody's gotta be part of that system. Uh, and everybody's gonna be part of this gridded transportation system where we all drive automobiles and there just isn't a choice about that if you're living here in Phoenix. And so I think one of the things that we were trying to explore, and we certainly see this in, in communities that we work with around the country, is a desire for more local op opportunities, more local options, more local control uh, over these kinds of choices to respond better to local contexts, local values, 
and so forth. So I hope that this message of customizability combined with this message that customizability might allow us to do better on questions of social and economic justice and racial justice. I hope that theme from the book resonates. So I, I wanted to add something building on what Lauren and Clark said, just from the perspective of someone who, who sort of like edits a lot of science fiction and, and, and short fiction. Um, I, at the same time we were working on this book, uh, I was also working on editing an anthology of climate fiction stories uh, based on a contest that we did in, in 2020 at ASU. And working on the books together, and especially the way that this one was focalized around four specific cities in the US, made me think about how like ecological, environmental, climate fiction might be unique in a way, and that it, its power comes from its focus on the local and on the particular uh, and on small pockets of culture and, and life ways. Uh, the visions of the future that are often sold to us by, you know, ad agencies and, and corporate futurists and uh, big science fiction universes are often really abstract and generic. It's like everybody's going to dress the same. You know, we're all going to get wiped out by an asteroid. Uh, there's going to be a robot uprising, whatever, right? Mad Max, desertification takes over the globe. And I think what I've liked about kind of ecological fiction, climate fiction, this energy work that we've been doing is that it is really responsive to local circumstances to like the weather in a certain area, the local history and the entrenched kind of power players in that, in that area, the demographic mix, the age cohorts in those areas, um, the resources that are available. So I think that is a really fresh thing. And I, and I think the, the more that we can get away from thinking of the future as something that's like kind of totalizing and flattening and instead about, I really like this term customization uh, which uh, somebody wrote for the book, Chris Gearhart from NREL, uh, titled his essay, Customizable Energy Futures, I think. That idea um, can hopefully help people like start to think like, okay, how can I sort of be involved in, in making the future and like not feeling like it all rolls up to this like galactic or planetary level, but it, it, that it can be about making connections with people in your, in your neighborhood and in your community and like figuring out what's actually going to work for you. And I think the fiction can be a helpful catalyst for certain people who are, you know, into reading literature or like talking about these things or, you know, might find these helpful as thinking instruments. And I know they, it, it really works that way for me. It's, it's definitely helped me think more critically about my lived environment and looking for the energy sources and, and the, the sort of traces of the grid and energy transmission around me. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I hope that these kind of ecological and climate fictions like give people a better appreciation for how the future is like starting to blossom and emerge around them instead of just like happening somewhere else out there in the world. Mm, yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad that that you all are bringing this up because I had a similar feeling about that, that context specific. I think I really enjoyed that about this book because it is so place-based and it really builds out very, very specific locations and personal relationships. Uh, is it, it's really interesting, and and I know that that you that you all hope that this this book has impact beyond yourselves, and that people are looking at it. But an, another thing that I'm really curious about is how it it impacted the folks around the table. Uh, so so all, all of all of your work and how you're thinking about things. How does science fiction influence what what you're doing in your lives um, and and your professional lives? Uh, and so I think this this is a question that I I can't take credit for. Uh, Deji added added this one to our list, and I really like it. Um, so I'd like to ask you guys to respond to this idea of what what were the special or magical moments uh, that happened in this collaboration? Uh, how might it have changed you uh, and, and your work? So that's an open question to the group. Well, I can speak um, to my experience. You know, I, I mentioned Lauren coming up with the idea of the dark sky communities. That was something I hadn't heard of before. That was special. Uh, I remember, I believe Chris was just, was just there to answer very pointed questions about where different solar cells could, could be located. And I remember feeling, wow, this is great. I could kind of throw anything at him and he would have an answer for it. And some of those, that vocabulary and those concepts went into the story. And then Parisa, who's not on this call, this is just a beautiful uh, visual artist, uh, who you know was sketching different visual treatments as we were working through the um, you know what the story might look like. For me, that was very special to just see and hear her kind of listening to us, paying attention, and then just 
you know, this image kind of erupt on the on the page. And she had different things that she worked through and she was sort of bouncing them off us to see what we thought. Um, then we had a lot of sharebacks, which I loved hearing from the other groups. Um, that was very interesting. But I would say that there's the magical moment was just like, wow, there's a lot of brain power in this room. This is one of the more enjoyable experiences I've had in my professional life. And then, you know, as I said, six months later to be leading sustainability in my day job and have this kind of like foundation to draw upon and having spent all that time at the National Renewable. I, oh, the other thing is I went to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory like 20 years ago and I drove across right as the, I think, you know, the Bush administration had just cut the budget. It was a really depressing time. And, um, you know, to see this state-of-the-art building with like amazing, you know, experiments and uh, all the thinkers there, it was really pretty cool. So there was just a lot of magic happening for me in the room uh, on those couple of days. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, being able to to do the hackathon at uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab was a, just a really cool experience and a very, I don't know, inspiring place in which to, to, to do that work. For me, though, I think that like the magic was really receiving Deji's story for the first time. Um, because, you know, we were together for two days, uh, having these really intense discussions, coming up with these ideas about the world. And then we, we went our separate ways. And to, to see his story capture the world that we had created and, and really be able to just take anyone who wasn't a part of that conversation and immerse them in this future that we created together was really just uh, spectacular, you know, so it, it's, it's, it's so um, far beyond my capabilities. You know, I mean, I wrote a sort of very social science -y essay about the world that we created. And that's really what I do. But, you know, Deji's story really like takes your hand and like walks you into the future and makes you feel what it's like to be there. And so that was really just awesome. Cool, cool. So one more question from me, if I may. Well, you, you talked about Deji's story taking us by the hand and into this new future. But as a futurist and a sci-fi fan, uh, I, I sometimes like to use sci-fi references to try to sell, you know, some, some vision that I think we should be working towards. Uh, and often that only goes so far because there, there seems to be a, a wall, an imagination wall that people run into where they say, oh, well, but that's just a story. That's all right for fiction, but we can't have that in real life, you know. We can't have a Star Trek future without the replicator technology. Uh, we can't have Wakanda without vibranium, the, the magic metal, right? So it seems like, you know, people get there, but then it, maybe it's the sci-fi idea in particular that is holding them back from it. But maybe uh, anyone who's interested could comment on how we can get past that, how we can uh, inspire people to implement some of these ideas in the real world. Uh, and if they're if it's not necessarily something in the imagination that's holding us back from that, what is it that we need in the real world to really move some of these things forward? So let me start on that one, because in some sense it goes to kind of the heart of this project. I don't personally see this as uh, offering people images of what the future should look like. Uh, what I hoped we would get, and I think we've been really successful at this, is a richer discussion of what different kinds of futures might mean for different kinds of people. And that that is something that we rarely explore in much depth. Uh, in our society and in the way we talk about the future in our society. You know, there's companies have little uh, interest in offering up choices about the future. They want us to live in the future that they've imagined for us to live in, right? 
And it actually turns out environmental organizations uh, also have ideas about the future that they want us to live in. And so we don't often actually have much opportunity to deliberate uh, about what different kinds of futures uh, might mean. And so uh, an important part of the way that we put this together, having multiple teams writing multiple stories was that we wanted to explore uh, those differences. And actually one of the things that's come out is that one of the things the writers, both the fiction writers, but also the teams more, more broadly really like to grapple with is difference inside the stories, right? So we saw that with Deji's story between Houston and San Antonio. I still remember the first story that I was involved in, uh, which was about Phoenix. And in it, it was a Romeo and Juliet story. And in it, we had the, the, the family that controlled the giant shade structure that covered literally square miles of Phoenix with solar, uh, solar panels versus these uh, desert dwelling nomads who were all about building these amazingly intricate solar powered technologies that were really beautiful, but they were for individuals to use in their day-to-day lives, right? And seeing that contrast within the, uh, the story. And so, um, and, and to me, you know, the first, you know, the first kind of step is as a reader, when we encounter these stories, they're not utopian, they're not dystopian, but they do explore these landscapes that are different. And so as a, we have to grapple with that in our minds. And that's a f- simple form of deliberation. And then my, our hope is, um, and we really haven't had the, you know, the kind of wherewithal to do this yet, but we're talking on Monday about some ideas about how we might uh, propose something that would actually begin to try to get some of these out into communities for real conversations uh, and to seed dialogues uh, because we're at a real moment in uh, the future of energy right now where a lot of people are saying, okay, we get it. We got to go carbon neutral by 2050. What are we going to do? And we're still in that, well, it's solar and wind or coal and natural gas world, right? And we're not yet quite in the, oh my goodness, we have to make hard choices about how we're going to put all of these solar panels down in the in the world. Uh, but I think we're going to really quickly get into some significant discussions. I mean, in Arizona, it's it's been sub subterranean politics, but it's real politics about, are we going to do distributed solar? Are we going to do community solar? Are we going to do giant solar fields? Um, You know, what, how are we going to power this big city uh, going forward, especially when we have to move all the cars onto the electricity grid, (laughs) right? And, um, and so, you know, we have, I, I, I'm hopeful that we can actually take this outward. And, and my vision is that it becomes a nodal point for encouraging a richer, fuller discussion of both what the choices are and what the implications of those choices might be for different parts of the city, different communities and so forth. Uh, so responding to that and to the way you frame the question, Robert, um, about the kind of imagination wall and this more like sort of far future transformative science fiction um, imaginary. What working on these two solar focused books with Clark and and everyone else here in the team has helped me understand better is that the technologies at play, you know, this is some, I don't have any technical expertise coming into this project with electrical engineering or anything. That's, that's all Clark, but um, the, the, the sort of technologies at, at play in a lot of these stories are social and governmental. And uh, Clark, uh, to c- continue to give him credit for how he set the table for these two volumes, talked um, in both workshops that we did for both books about ownership 
as a really key thing to think about. Like who is gonna own these panels? Who's gonna govern them? Who's gonna draw profit from them? Who's gonna be responsible for maintaining and just, you know, um, uh, discarding them eventually in a, in a sort of safe and sustainable way, recycling them. And those are the technological questions. In some ways, like a solar panel, it's not that it's easy to understand, but it's like, I think people don't feel quite as intimidated as they do when we talk about the blockchain or something. But meanwhile, it's like we actually have to design these new ways of deliberating and making decisions collectively and figuring out how we're going to distribute ownership and therefore power. And I think that means that fictional interventions, which focus on causality and power relations and hopefully building more empathy and understanding and and hopefully solidarity among different groups, um, especially in the face of a looming environmental catastrophe, like, you know, the global climate crisis, the fiction can actually help. Like it can be a place to deliberate because you don't need a bunch of diagrams to understand that, like, we need to figure out where we're going to put solar panels, who's going to own them, um, who's going to profit from them. Um, So yeah, I'm hopeful that this is a place where, because we're lucky to have all of these experts giving us the right themes and framings for these, um, that we don't end up thinking of this as an inscrutable technical question, but a question about organizing ourselves and organizing our communities. I would just add with a plug for uh, Center for Science and the Imagination that, you know, okay, I'm a scenario practitioner by training. So most of my futures work is very instrumental. You know, you judge the quality of the futures by their ability to uh, inform decisions today. But those decisions that can be informed by a set of future scenarios aren't necessarily transformative, right? They're not they're not really making the future entirely different. They're often the sort of strategic decisions that position an organization or or, uh, a group of individuals better for a set of circumstances. But there is some value uh, in creating different imaginations of what the future could look like, you know, of, of just you know, putting ideas out there that can then be discussed. And I, and I think I like the idea that, that Clark proposed about, you know, having follow-up discussions about, you know, what are the implications of these, these futures and, and how do these stories change what you think is possible and what you think is desirable. But I think it's important, even if you can't draw a line between future and decision, to tell stories about radically transformed futures, and particularly amidst a climate crisis in which the narratives surrounding the future and climate change are predominantly reflective of of the catastrophe that is on our hands to tell hopeful stories about how people themselves are transformed and transform their communities uh, in ways that are positive. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I really, I really love this theme that's going through the discussion here about these, uh, think again, thinking contextually, thinking about, about people where they are, this like different futures and the discourse around them. So, so, so what I, so what I'm thinking about here is as we're talking about these differences between people and, and understand how they're, how they're entering this conversation, I'm, I'm very curious about the accessibility of science fiction um, as a genre. So this is like kind of from, from my personal experience uh, as a teenager, I was a big bookworm and I really loved, I consumed a lot of uh, science fiction, but really feeling um, like it was a club that I didn't belong to. Like there was a lot of, I don't, you know, sort of the Trekkie thing. Like I didn't speak Klingon. I didn't have an interest in that. Like, you know, like I wanted to be a part of it, but I, so it was, it was more like a personal thing for me. Like, it, and, and then in, in college, I was exposed to more writers and it really opened that world up to me. And it said like, yes, I'm a part of this. So I, I'm also thinking about the, the stories that are in this book do seem like they, they bring in a large number of people, but I'm also curious if I, I would love to hear some of your reflections on the accessibility of these stories, but also science fiction as a vehicle to bring people in. Uh, I think there's a tension there. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I, could, I could speak just quickly. Um, you mentioned accessibility. I deliberately made one of the characters in the story, someone with an impairment, um, Raj's daughter, um, who uh, is, uh, doesn't have use of her le- one of her legs um, and has a prosthetic to help her and I was moved by that. There was an editor, I was at a, conf- a, a conference where an editor of a 
a science fiction magazine was saying like disabled people largely disappear from the future because we're supposed to have come up with solutions to avoid and, and basically make them no longer exist. And uh, that, that was really, uh, that impacted me, um, you know, as a person of color, uh, certainly, you know, people now have, are familiar with writers like Samuel Delaney and Chip Delaney and, um, you know, Octavia Butler. I mean, they're almost house, becoming household names within certain communities. I didn't know those authors. I didn't have access to them. I knew what was what were the best sellers. I think there's the general stigma that at least when I was growing up, uh, reading science fiction was geeky and nerdy. Uh, this was before the tech companies took over the world, where that was actually something you should be proud of. Uh, you know, it was considered a nerdy thing and escapism. Um, I think a lot of that is shifting. You know, for me, as as problematic as you know, some of her recent views have been like J.K. Rowling, what she did is she got so many people excited about reading. And I think that basic, one of the, one of the nonprofits that I support personally um, is called Barbershop Books. And all they do is, particularly in, in uh, African-American communities, uh, young boys, some of their mentors are, are their barbers. So they put books in barbershops. It's, it's simple. Um, and just like that, the idea that more people need to read, they can read about Captain Underpants, they can read Harry Potter, they can read Octavia Butler, though these are small kids, so they're more like picture books. Um, but just like getting more people access to that, we need readers because we can write these great stories, but if people aren't reading, it doesn't really matter if they're just watching Netflix or streaming, uh, you know, a million different kinds of content. Um, I, I'm afraid that we're at peak content where there's a real competition for people's attention. And uh, we need to just keep cultivating readers as, as, as a truly like important and, you know, rewarding method of entertainment and engagement. I would just add one very brief thing. And that is I've been inspired recently reading science fiction written by Iraqi and Palestinian writers. And I'm taking that idea. And now what we're trying to think about is how do we bring in uh, speculative fiction writers, whether they're futurist oriented or not, from different cultural backgrounds into these, this, you know, ongoing project to try to understand, because I think that we'll find that they speak not only to their own communities, but they speak differently to other communities and we'll all have a richer opportunity to think about the future. Thanks for letting me sneak that one last question in here, everyone. Um, I was really excited for your thoughts on that. So, you know, the stories in Cities of Light are so fun and so inspiring. I think it would be great if one of the authors, Deji Olokutun, would favor us with a short passage from his story, The Send of the Free Tales, before we wrap up. Great, thank you so much. Um, first time reading this aloud, forgive the lack of accents because there would be accents in the story. Um, and my impression of a teenage girl is probably not the best, um, but here we go. The billboard stopped as soon as they crossed the county line respecting San Antonio's more conservative data ordinances. The route offered glimpses of open country, fence barbed wire fences curling beneath gnarled oaks the thick spear of longhorn cattle. But the suburbs of the two cities nearly touched, about to connect like the fingers of God and Adam in the Sistine. As they drew closer to the city, the lawns became their escapes with succulents, a world apart from the spongy Bermuda grass that Raj manicured in his front yard back in Houston. The landscape felt puckered, thirsty, with solar arrays blotting out the horizon like the blue-black scales of a pelagic fish. Raj couldn't shake the feeling that he was driving towards a colossal mistake. San Antonio was known to harbor more than a few juicer gangs. He reached for the pulse stick in his jacket pocket when his fingers touched the handle and vibrated, but he quickly withdrew his hand, afraid that his wife would hear the weapon's cartridge spin up. The road split and then split again into separate lanes for automated vehicles, rapid transit buses, and then carbon burning vehicles. The larger shipping trucks packed together like a Peloton were forced to exit before entering the city limits. 
He could see them unloading their wares onto smaller two-axle vehicles not far off the highway. Raj, Helena said quietly in the passenger seat beside him. You said we'd go to La Estrella first to drop off our bags. I don't want to be rushed. We've been planning to go to the Alamo for months. No, we've been planning to go to La Estrella for months. And you glommed on the Alamo like they were two peas in a pod. It's one of the only neighborhoods we could afford here. We should get a good look at it. Rosa should know her history. It's important for Texas. It's important for this country. Helena pushed her hair behind her ear. I've never once heard you mention it before. The Alamo has been around for like 500 million years or something, Rosa observed from the back seat. Helena, I'm not comfortable dragging our kid into a neighborhood with that kind of reputation. I'm not a kid. I talked to Yemi about it, Elena said. It's perfectly safe. We're going to the Alamo. We've got plenty of time. The lane for the Alamo, now lit from underneath by neon logos, turned sharply to the left, dropping them in the center of the city. Helena was right, of course. Raj hated the Alamo as a kid. He visited it on a school trip soon after immigrating with his family from Guyana, an English-speaking country in South America with oil reserves rivaling those of Venezuela. Raj had been something of a flirt back in his home country and well-liked, so he sat next to a pretty classmate on the bus ride to the monument and tried to make her laugh. After a few unsuccessful tries, she replied, I can't understand what you're saying. You don't even sound Mexican. He became instantly ashamed of his accent that day, wanting to scrape his heritage from his tongue. Raj parked his F-150 at the Alamo, his own truck, not a school bus this time, and was charged $100 for the day because his car used gasoline. The electrics, he noticed, were charged half that amount. San Antonio's subtle way of frowning on the carbon-intensive largesse of Houstonians. Rosa dangled her strong leg over the side of the car and twisted on her artificial leg with a click. There was a soft whir as the servo motors kicked in and she hopped down from her seat. They stood in line for nearly an hour in the stultifying midday heat to Raj's mounting frustration. Rosa handled it well at first, engrossed in her flexi. The ticket salesperson said they could rent AR goggles that would allow them to watch the recreated Battle of the Alamo right before their eyes for a special one-time offer of $75 per person. Raj declined. By the time they stepped inside, he could register Rosa's disappointment as she watched other children wander the grounds with their goggles on, laughing and reacting to the simulated battle. Why won't he give me the goggles? Rosa asked her mother, as if Raj wasn't there. We can't afford it, Elena said softly. Thanks. That was great, thank you. All right, everyone, you have been so generous with your time, Marissa and I, and the rest of the team at the Future Cities podcast really appreciate it. So uh, we have been really lucky today to have with us the editors and a couple of the fiction writers and essayists, one each, of the new book, Cities of Light, a collection of solar futures. So we will provide a link to get the book in the text accompanying the podcast episode. And I will go around my Zoom screen and just ask our guests clockwise in the order that I see them to just tell us where people who are interested can find out more about your work and maybe a social media handle if you use one where they might be able to contact you. So starting in the upper left, we'll start with Clark Miller. Uh, you can find me at the Center for Energy and Society at Arizona State University and on Twitter at Clark A. Miller. Super, and Joey. Sure. Uh, you can uh, find out more about what we do at the Center for Science and the Imagination at csi.asu.edu. And uh, I don't have Twitter, but the center's Twitter is at uh, ImaginationASU. Great, thank you. And Lauren? You can find me online at the Center for the Study of Futures at Arizona State University and on Twitter at FemFutura. Thank you so much. And Deji? You can find me at returnofthedeji.com, D-E-J-I.com. And on Twitter at Olutron, which is O-L-U-T-R-O-N. Yeah, Tron is also one of my favorite movies. I try to squeeze those things in there. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, everyone. From me, Robert Lloyd, and...
Marissa Matzler. Thanks so much, everyone. Great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.